Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the London School of Economics and to this British Government at LSE event. My name is Paul Kelly. I'm a pro-director of the school, and for those of you who aren't of the school, I'm also a professor in the government department. Um, tonight, it is my great pleasure to welcome and a privilege for the school to have here Diane Abbott, MP for Hackney North and Stoke Newington, to speak to us on the topic of... London, A Tale of Two Cities. Diane is very, very well known to anybody who watches the television, but let me say something about her anyway. Um, <clears throat> Diane is a Londoner, um, educated here and at Cambridge, but most importantly, in 1987, she made history becoming the first black woman ever to be elected to the British Parliament um, and was part of a distinguished group of uh, politicians, Keith Vaz, Bernie Grant, Paul Boateng, who have helped to change in a small way, only a small way, but nevertheless started this, the, uh, the, the, the character of, of Parliament. Before becoming an MP, she worked in the Home Office, the National Council for Civil Liberties, now, now Liberty, um, for Thames Television, for the Greater London Council, and for Lambeth Council. As I say, since 1987, she's represented Hackney North and Stoke Newington and has been a high-profile Labour MP. Um, during the Blair government, Ms Abbott often attacked the Prime Minister, repeatedly rebelling against the party whip on issues such as tuition fees, boo, civil liberties, the Iraq war... She stood as a candidate for the deputy leadership of the Labour Party in 2010, um, was subsequently, uh, was unsuccessful obviously, uh, but was subsequently appointed for a time as a shadow minister for public health by Ed Miliband, taking shadow responsibility for a range of important issues including child's health, maternity services, sexual health, tobacco, nursing, obesity and alcohol abuse. She has, as most of you will know, appeared on the television she has been, on many occasions, a pundit on BBC Two's This Week political programme, sitting alongside her former Conservative, alongside former Conservative Cabinet Minister Michael Portillo, whom she has known since they were at the same school. Diane is a frequent public speaker, newspaper contributor, TV performer, appearing on such programmes as Have I Got News to you, For You?, this is helpfully provided by my colleagues for British Government at LSE. But on your own um, biography, you also show that you speak at major universities throughout the world, including Ivy League universities such as Harvard. So a very important figure. Um, a great pleasure to have here to speak to us. I could go on all evening, but um, I would like to hand over the floor to Diane Abbott to talk to us this evening about London, A Tale of Two Cities. So join with me in welcoming Diane. Ladies and gentlemen, comrades, distinguished guests, good evening. That's a bit feeble. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> comrades, distinguished guests, good evening. Good evening. 
I would like to start by thanking Professor Tony Travers and LSE London for making it possible for me to take part in this public lecture series. There is no more knowledgeable academic on the subject of London than Professor Travers, and I'm honoured that he's taken the time to actually listen to my lecture. In 2016, London will be voting for only the third individual ever to be its directly elected mayor. And who knows, they might even elect a woman this time. <laughs> but I think it is not too early to begin a conversation about the challenges that London faces and how an incoming mayor might use his or her powers. Because, paradoxically, in an increasingly international and globalised world, and no one knows more about that than the LSE, cities are more important than ever. Benjamin Barber, in his, in his book, If Mayors Ruled the World, said this, the city now appears to be our destiny. It is where creativity is unleashed, community solidified, and citizenship realised. If we are to be rescued, the city, rather than the nation-state, must be the agent of change. And I think this is more true of London than any city in the British Isles. And the question of what powers London should have is particularly timely in the aftermath of the Scottish independence referendum campaign. If all the Westminster parties now agree on the urgency of giving more political powers to Scotland, how much more pressing is the case for more political powers for London, which after all has a population as big as Scotland and Wales put together and whose contribution to the United Kingdom's GDP is twice that of Scotland and Wales. But the theme of my talk this evening is a tale of two cities. It references a well-known novel by Charles Dickens, which begins, the opening lines of A Tale of Two Cities are, it was the best of times and the worst of times. And my thesis this evening is that this is both the best of times for London, but also the worst, particularly for the poor. So I want to talk about widening inequality in our great city. And as someone who lives in Hackney, which remains, despite um, the hipsters, which now populate our high street, as someone who lives in Hackney, but can see the towers of the City of London from the bedroom windows of my house, I am very aware of the widening gulf between rich and poor in London. And it's not just about the gulf between the very poorest and the super wealthy, although that is massive. The truth is that average wages, the average wage earner, has seen their wage 
fall by £50 a week in real terms since 2008. So many employed and middle-income Londoners who are struggling to cope with spiralling housing costs, transport costs, job insecurity and falling standards of living see a chasm opening up between them and the wealthiest Londoners. Not to mention the chasm between them and the international glitterati who flock here in such numbers. London is more unequal than any other part of the British Isles. The top 10% in London earn four and a half times the bottom 10% and the gulf is widening all the time. Child poverty is a third higher in London than England as a whole. And you may say, some of you will be students at the LSE and expect to emerge and be amongst the top 10% of earners. You may say, what is that to me? But in fact, we all pay a price for London's, for London's deepening inequality. So I believe that whoever is elected mayor in 2016 should not gloss over the issue. They should, of course, work to bring Londoners together, but they should also use their powers to help those who the London of Boris Johnson are leaving behind. There are many issues I could talk about in relation to inequality, but I want to concentrate this evening on talking about health, housing, equalities in general, and the issue which underlies all of it, economic inequality and the prospects for growth. I think no other area of policy illustrates the vast inequalities in London better than health, particularly public health. For every stop on the Jubilee line between Westminster and Canning Town, life expectancy goes down a year. London is the city with the most multimillionaires in the world but it is also the TB capital of Western Europe. It has some of the finest teaching hospitals in the world, and people come to London for medical treatment from all over the world. But two-thirds of London GPs, and they all work very hard, but two-thirds of London GPs perform worse than the English average, particularly in relation to access. Yet for the poorest Londoners, their GP is their route into healthcare. London hosted the Olympic Games in 2012 and we were all thrilled by it and we all gloried in the performances of the world's finest athletes, including Usain Bolt. But two years later, what is the Olympic legacy for the Olympic Borough of Newham? It is that they have the highest number of 10 to 11-year-olds in London who are obese. They also have the second highest number of 5 to 16-year-olds with mental disorders. So yes, the Olympics were glorious. Yes, we all enjoyed having them here. But we have to look at the underside of what happened when the Olympics folded their tents and moved along. And Newham is not alone. The numbers of overweight children have been rising in most of the London boroughs. Our capital has some of the most obese school children in Europe. And some of you will say, well, what does it matter if a few children are a bit chubby? What is happening, what is happening is that childhood obesity leads to adult obesity, which in turn leads to hypertension and diabetes. 10% of the National Health Service drugs budget is spent 
on medication for diabetes. So dealing with obesity at the childhood stage is vital. And of course, London's been hit by a wave of hospital closures and so-called reconfigurations, notably in Lewisham, Hammersmith and northwest London. I believe that the current Mayor Boris Johnson has missed the opportunity to strategically address at a pan-London level the current and future public health needs of our communities. So I agree with the findings of Lord Darcy's Health Commission. I believe that an incoming mayor should appoint a London Health Commissioner to work with the NHS and Public Health England to drive an assault on public health inequality in London. And there's a range of issues on which progress will be best made London-wide, working with the boroughs, who now have responsibility for public health. Take HIV. Ostensibly, public health is dealt with on a borough level now. But you know, you could be HIV positive, and you could live in Lewisham, you could have a partner in Hackney, and you could work in Westminster. Which borough is supposed to pay for and make available the treatments and the tests you need? Clean air? is another issue that has to be dealt with London-wide. I think we could, in London, the mayor in London could do more to work with boroughs on the issue of the minimum pricing for alcohol. Alcohol is one of the biggest drivers of disorder, domestic violence, and people piling into our A&Es. I think that an incoming mayor could work with boroughs to set up exclusion, exclusion zones for fast food shops around schools. Do you know that Newham has 42 chicken shops for every secondary school? Is it any wonder it has such a severe obesity problem? The other issue which I think should be dealt with on a London-wide basis is mental, mental ill health. Over a million Londoners suffer from mental illness and everyone, everyone acknowledges that the services available and the parity of esteem between mental health and physical health are not the same. And in particular in London, there's a particular issue with black and minority ethnic mental health. We are more likely to be labelled schizophrenic, more likely to be offered drugs, more likely to find ourselves trapped in the mental health system. I think a London Health Commission would also have a role in convening and convening London-wide discussions on reconfiguration, these so-called hospital closures and mergers. A London Health Commission could help evaluate proposed reconfigurations in a holistic way, looking at the validity of statistics on which they are based, looking to see whether the new facilities in the community always promise when a hospital closes actually happen, looking at the effects on employment. One of the problems with, for instance, hospital closures in northwest London, those hospitals are major employers in, the, in that part of London. The NHS wasn't looking at that issue at all. I also think that a London Health Commissioner could look at the question of the best use of NHS sites which become vacant or partially used. The next question that I wanted to deal with is housing and how housing drives inequality. I don't think anybody in this audience doubts that London has a housing crisis. <coughs> the average house price in London is 600000 which is nearly twice that in the rest of the country. Renting a flat in London costs on average £1,516 a month. Across the rest of the UK, 
the average monthly rental for a flat is just £665 in Hackney. A garage was recently on sale for 375000 and in Mayfair, an eight-car parking space was on the market for £2.25 million. Now, this is a housing market which is completely out of whack. So what is the effect of this? Well, one effect is that young Londoners cannot afford to buy. The price of houses in boroughs like Hackney has shot way ahead of average earnings. Young Londoners cannot afford to buy. They are forced to rent well into their 30s or move outside the M25. It also causes problem in recruitment. For instance, if you look at the NHS, it has some of the lowest retention rates and some of the highest vacancy rates in the country. And housing, the ability to get affordable housing, is the number one issue behind the difficulty NHS in London has in attracting and retaining staff. High property prices are also behind spiralling rents and high property prices and high private sector rents also indirectly affect rents in the social housing sector because councils have been under pressure since the last Labour government to try and bring social housing rents a bit closer to the prevailing market rent. So what causes this? I think that part of the reason behind a dysfunctional London housing market is the unlimited supply of super wealthy, willing to buy, wanting to buy property in central London. They use London property as a status symbol and a safe deposit box, often keeping the property (coughs) empty for much of the year. Even in Hackney, some of our recent developments in Dalston Junction, a large number of them, were bought off plan in the Middle East. I was born in London. Um, I was born in the hospital St Mary's High Road, which is no longer there. It's actually the site was covered in private housing, in fact. Um, and we, when I was born, we lived in a house in North Paddington. I imagine the people that live there now call it Notting Hill, but it was actually North Paddington. (laughs) And it was actually a very large house. I think it was four storeys with a basement, and it was kind of white stucco on the front. But the point is, when we lived there, we lived in one room, and our cooker was on the landing. And the other rooms in the house were either for individuals or couples or families. Now, when I go back to Notting Hill, which I usually go back around the time of Carnival, those same houses that I knew as a child have been painted pink and have one merchant banker and his or her family. Now, I think what is happening in London is that the areas in London where the middle classes and upper middle classes used to live have been priced out of their reach by the super wealthy coming to the centre of London and that has driven the middle class and upper middle classes out to places like Hackney. One part of London I knew very well as a child was Brent. A lot of West Indians lived in Brent. So you could have knocked me down with a feather when I heard a few years ago that the editor of Vogue lives in Queen's Park in Brent. Now, this is an area when I was a child just full of West Indians and Irish people and poor white people. What you're getting is these ripples of gentrification driven from the centre 
by non-dom buyers at the very centre, which is making it harder and harder for people on average earnings to even think about having a property in London. And some of some commentators and even some colleagues in the Labour Party talk about market solutions to the London <coughs> housing market. And if there is one thing I would say to you this evening, London is not a functioning London housing is not a functioning market. And what makes it dysfunctional is the number of non dom people coming in and buying up in the centre of London. And because it's not a functioning market, simply increasing the supply of houses will not bring property prices down and will not bring rentals down. So what should we do? We should tighten up on exploitative letting agents. We should, and I know this is a boo word, we should bring in some measure of rent control. Most people recoil in horror when you talk about rent control, but the truth is they have different types of rent controls in New York, San Francisco, Berlin, Sweden... For, as far as I'm concerned, you don't even have to call it rent control, but you do have to stabilise rent. It is not sustainable to have rents in London moving so far ahead of average incomes. And of course, as well as all of that, London councils should be allowed to borrow to build. And now a word on the mansion tax, which you may have heard something about. Um, in my view, if you want to impose a new property tax, actually, the fairest thing would be to review council tax. Council tax was introduced in 1993, it's based on a 1991 valuation, and it's never been updated. However, this is politically unacceptable, so I'm not suggesting that. Um, first of all, let me say that Ed Ball's recent attempt to make the mansion tax fairer is to be welcomed. His ideas about the mansion tax are also to be welcomed to the extent which it is a redistributive measure in London. However, a mansion tax, even when it cuts in at two million, for a number of reasons, will be a hard sell in London. I believe that on the mansion tax, the way forward in line from the recommendations of the London Finance Commission and the Royal Society of Art City Growth Commission, which reported today is for some or all of the proceeds of the mansion tax raised in London to be kept here in London. I would hypothecate it to a London housing authority chaired by the mayor, which would build genuinely affordable housing for, London, for Londoners. I would also work with the boroughs to pilot a scheme to allow the London housing authority to give mortgages to public sector workers. I got my first mortgage from Westminster Council. I think they gave out mortgages because they wanted to improve, they wanted to encourage homeowners because they thought that homeowners were more likely to be Tories. I didn't get it quite right with me, but you know, I was grateful anyway. Um, some party colleagues are arguing that anyone who critiques the mansion tax is against more doctors and nurses. I would say that actually nothing would do more to help us recruit more doctors and nurses in London than being able to offer them affordable housing within commuting distance to their hospital. I referred earlier to the vacancies, to the turnover, and actually being able to offer public sector workers affordable housing within commuting distance of their work, certainly in the NHS, would lessen dependence on expensive agency workers. I also think we should be targeting non-DOM buyers 
with, amongst other things, special rates of capital gains tax. Finally on housing, let me say this. Some people are arguing that the way to deal with the housing crisis in London is to build on the green belt. I just want to make it clear that I'm against it, that it's developer talk. When you talk to developers about the London housing crisis, they say, oh, well, if you let us build on the green belt. But, of course, they want to build on the green belt. It's easy, it's cheap. They will build these little executive uh, sort of houses. But actually... If you allow unlimited development on the green belt, it actually defeats the primary objective, checking urban, which was to check urban sprawl and support biodiversity. I think it would be of concern to both Londoners living on the edge of the green belt and many people in the inner city who are rightly concerned about green issues. My view is this. There are 50,000 brownfield sites in London which comprise 4,000 hectares in all. You could build... 366,000 houses on them. Let's start with that before we start encouraging urban sprawl on the green belt. We could also, I think, um, have more development at London transport nodes, which happen to be within the green belt. But what I'm opposed to is building on the green belt willy-nilly. I think we should address the utilisation of brownfield sites in central London before we do that. I wanted to move on to equalities in general, and I wanted to start by talking about LGBT issues. 50% of this country's LGBT community lives in London and Brighton. So these issues should properly be of concern to an incoming mayor. And London has a proud record on these issues. It was Ken Livingstone who introduced civil partnerships, um, and there was a lot of controversy at the time, but he introduced them here in London, and that paved the way for Tony Blair to introduce civil partnerships at the national level and ultimately pave the way for David Cameron, and it's an extraordinary thing really for a Tory Prime Minister, to bring in gay marriage. But there are other issues around LGBT communities that an incoming mayor has to address. I touched on the issue of HIV provision and how it really has to be London-wide if it's going to be effective. We've had a problematic situation after the Conservative Party reforms of the NHS where individual boroughs met together to decide what to do about the existing London-wide HIV provision and they managed to cut every single HIV, HIV scheme which is targeted at the black African community. Now, they couldn't have done that had there been any transparency, and they couldn't have done that really if they'd understood the issues. This is the kind of area where a mayor could be affected. We recently saw a London bus driver throw an LGBT couple off a bus for kissing. Wherever it is within the mayor's powers, London should be a no-go area for that sort of bigotry. Let me move on and talk about UKIP. We have seen, I have seen, the rise of what I believe is a toxic anti-immigrant culture. And at Westminster, sadly, it seems that both parties, to a degree, want to collude in anti-immigrant rhetoric. Now, of course, there are issues caused by large populations and related to immigration. Issues about housing, 
issues about stopping wages being undercut. But it seems to me you address those issues, you don't scapegoat immigrants. And what I would say is this. London is a city built by immigrants for over two centuries. We are the city that immigration made, whether it is the Irish labourers who came over in Victorian times to build most of our early transport infrastructure, whether it's the Jews from Eastern Europe that came um, at the beginning of the 20th century, whether it's West Indians, Africans, Turks, Kurds, and now Europeans. This is the city. This is the city which has made a great world city precisely because of the immigrants that have come over the years. Show me a London hospital that would not close down tomorrow without the labour of immigrants and the children of immigrants. Show me the public service in London that is not reliant on the work of immigrants, so-called immigrants. London's art, music and culture have been immeasurably enriched by the contribution of immigrants, not to mention our restaurants. When I was a child, if you ate out in London, it was always chicken and chips and black forest gatto. Immigrants have done a great deal to improve that. Um, now, some people will say, yeah, well, you say that, Diane, but I've heard West Indians and Africans complain about Eastern Europeans. I would say this. In precisely the same way as some members of the West Indian and African community complain about Eastern Europeans, the Irish community complains about West Indians and Africans. And before that, in the Victorian era, people complained about the Irish. And the point about anti-immigrant politics is the narrative doesn't change from century to century. In the 19th century, they said the Irish were coming here, they were driving down wages, they were taking away jobs from British people, and that's what they say about Europeans today. My view is, deal with the dysfunctional labour market, enforce not just a minimum wage, but a national living wage, have an improved factory inspector and the rest of it, but we should not be scapegoating immigrants. My view is, and I would hope a com uh, an incoming mayor would take this view, London should be ground zero in the fight against the anti-immigrant politics which seem about to engulf Westminster. London should be proud of its diversity and we should be celebrating its diversity. Finally, I want to go on to issues around growth. In fighting poverty and inequality, which is the theme of my speech, the most important thing is to get the economy growing. In the first place, I believe that education is the key to growth. And one of the things that I hope an incoming Labour mayor would do would be to restore the education maintenance allowance. Now, many of you will have been more focused on issues around tuition fees and so on, but I have to tell you, but for young people who lived in Hackney and for young people in London city boroughs, it was the loss of the educational maintenance allowance <coughs> which hit them hardest because many of them did not go directly to university. They went to college and then perhaps from there to university. I believe that because education is the key to growth, I would fulfil Ken Livingstone's promise in the last mayoral election to bring back the educational maintenance allowance. But if we're looking at growth, the problem is that we currently in London, have a bubble economy.
based on house prices and financial services. No wonder that we heard today the deficit is actually getting worse because we don't have genuine growth. I believe London needs to be able to borrow for infrastructure investment, Crossrail 2, for instance, <coughs> in uh, no less authority to the International Monetary Fund. In its latest World Economic Outlook, it's said that borrowing for investment in infrastructure is likely to pay for itself, particularly if investments are well-planned and executed. And the UK has the second-worst infrastructure in the group of seven leading high-income countries, ahead only of Italy. So being able to invest in infrastructure in London is the key to achieving real growth. It's Mayor Bloomberg, the mayor of New York, who's scarcely a socialist, who said, empowering cities to invest in their own futures not only makes them stronger, it makes their nation stronger too. That is why I support the proposals by the London Finance Commission, so ably led by Professor Tony Travers, and today the Royal Society of Arts City Growth Commission, that London should be allowed to keep more of the property taxes raised in the city. So, as I said at the beginning, the title of this talk refers to the tale of two cities and its opening lines, the best of times and the worst of times. Very true of London today. Never more wealthy, vibrant and multicultural, but never more poverty in our midst. I should say at this point that some of you will have come this evening expecting a big announcement. (laughs) I have to disappoint you and say there will be no big announcement tonight. seems to me, as one of London's longest-serving MPs, that the priority for London Labour Party MPs has to be fighting to win key London marginals. But it's not too early, as I said again at the beginning, to start a discussion about the issues facing our great city And this is what I am doing tonight. I remember when I was first selected as the candidate for Hackney North and Stoke Newington. I was working in Lambeth, working for the council. So most evenings, I would take the 35 bus from Lambeth, would go over London Bridge to Hackney. So most evenings, as I crossed over London Bridge, I would look upstream, and downstream at the Thames, and I would always think to myself, what a privilege to be able to become a representative of this great city. It was Dr Johnson who said, a man, and I think a woman, who is tired of London, is tired of life. And I feel passionate about London because London has done so much for me and my generation. I am the daughter of the immigrants that you hear so much about from UKIP and others. And as a young woman, born and brought up in London, I was able to have the benefit of free education all the way up to university. I was able to have top quality health care. I was able to buy my own home before I was 30, and above all, London enabled me to fulfil my dreams. And the point about London is that people come here from all over the country, from all over the world, because they believe that London will enable them 
to fulfill their dreams. Now, I worry that a young Diane Abbott starting out today would not have the opportunities and the possibilities that I had. That's why I think it is so important to address the rising tide of inequality in London. We have a general election in 2015, but as I say, in 2016, we will be electing a mayor. I don't believe that London wants a mayor. That is a glove puppet for their party. Neither Ken Livingstone or Boris Johnson can be accused of that. And I think the campaign for mayor ought to be about some of the big issues that I have raised tonight. I believe that London is, for me, the greatest city in the world. It ought to continue to offer hope, to be a beacon, to provide opportunities. And I believe the incoming mayor will be able to take the issue of combating inequality, including economic inequality, forward. I've talked about a tale of two cities, but I would like to see an incoming mayor make London one city. One city in its values, one city in its aspirations, and one city in its possibilities. Thank you very much.